and doomed to certain disappointment. But here a difficulty presents itself, and a formidable one it has proved unto most of those who sought to grapple with it. In our text we are told that by faith they passed through the Red Sea, whereas in Hebrews 3, 18 and 19 it is said, To whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Was then their faith only a temporary one, like that of the stony ground hearers? No, for the faith mentioned in every other verse in Hebrews 11 was a saving one, and we dare not arbitrarily assume this in verse 29 was an altogether different one. The solution of our present difficulty lies in attentively noting the pronoun which the Holy Spirit has here employed. By faith they pass through the Red Sea. It is not there said that by faith the children of Israel did so, for it is very evident from their later history that the vast majority of them were a very forward generation, children in whom is no faith. Deuteronomy 32.29 The reference then in our text is unto Moses and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua, and the believing remnant among the Hebrews. But it may be asked, did not the unbelieving portion of the nation also pass safely through the Red Sea? Truly, and therein we have an illustration of the fact that unbelievers are frequently made partakers of temporal blessings as the result of their association with the people of God. Another example of this principle is found in Acts 27.24, where we see that an entire ship's company were spared for Paul's sake. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, essaying to do, were drowned. Chapter 11, verse 29. In seeking to expound this verse, we cannot do better than adopt the division of the Puritan Manton thereon, considering it three ways, historically, sacramentally, and applicatively. First then, historically. Our text takes us back to what is recorded in Exodus 14. There we learn that when at last Pharaoh consented to let the Hebrews go, he soon repented of his grant, and being informed by his spies that the Israelites were entangled in the straits of Pahiroth, he determined to pursue and either recover or destroy them. At the head of a great military force, he swiftly went after them. The consequence was that when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that 
we should die in the wilderness. Exodus 14, 10-12 A truly desperate situation now faced Moses and the company he was leading. E. W. Bollinger said, Shut in between the great fortress Migdal, which was on the shore or wall, built to protect Egypt from Asia, and the sea, with Pharaoh's host behind them, and shut in on the other side by the wilderness, Exodus 14, 2 and 3, it was indeed a crisis. Unquote. What could the poor Israelites do? Fight they dare not, being a multitude of undisciplined people of all sexes and ages, and pursued by a regular and powerful army of enemies. Flee they could not, for they were completely hemmed in on every side. To all outward appearances their case seemed hopeless, and to human reason nothing but sore destruction might be expected. The situation which confronted Israel was a hopeless one so far as they were concerned, and had not the Lord shown himself strong on their behalf, they had undoubtedly perished. But if God be for us, who can be against us? Ah, my reader, that is a great thing for each of us to make sure of. And when we have done so, to see grace to rest with unshaken confidence upon it. Has not God promised, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. Isaiah 43.2 What better assurance than that can the believing heart ask for? No matter how deep and wide-stretching, no matter how dark and foreboding the waters of adverse circumstances may be unto sight and sense, has not he who cannot lie declared, They shall not overflow thee? And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Exodus 14.13 Undeterred by the chiding of the people, and wisely making no reply thereto, Moses turned their minds away from the outward danger, and directed their thoughts unto Jehovah. They had lifted up their eyes and beheld the Egyptians, verse 10, and in consequence they were so afraid. But there was something else for faith to see, namely the salvation or deliverance of the Lord, which was not yet visible to natural sight. If they were steadfastly occupied with that, their trembling hearts would be stilled. Admire, dear reader, the confident assurance which the divine grace wrought in the heart of Moses, for by nature he was a frail man of like passions and infirmities as we. But there was no wavering or doubting on his part. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. That was the language of faith, of a supernatural, God-given faith. Moses was not engaged with the difficulties and dangers of the trying situation which confronted them. Instead, he was occupied with one before whom all difficulties disappear like mists before the rising sun. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Verse 14. 
Once the soul is able to rest on that fact, doubtings end and alarms are silenced. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 Faith must have a foundation to stand upon, and the only firm and sure one is the promise of the living God. Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Afforded the necessary ground for the faith of each believing Hebrew to rest upon. The eye of faith must see that divine salvation or deliverance before the eye of sense beholds it. Only the sure word of God could give strength to their hearts to advance into the ocean before them. When the promise had been heard and not before, then came the order, Go forward. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward, but lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Exodus 14, 15, and 16 Thus we learn that the heart of Moses was engaged in silent supplication at this time. The Lord's statement here is not to be understood as a rebuke. No, Moses was waiting the word of command, and until it was given, he stayed himself from the Lord. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 22 According to Thomas Manton, when Moses gave the signal by his rod, the sea miraculously retreated, standing up like heaps of congealed ice on either side while they passed through. This is done, and they go on safely. The sea flanked them on both sides. The rear was secured by the cloudy and fiery pillar interposing between them and Pharaoh's army, till such a time as all were out of danger and safely arrived at the further shore. And so neither man nor child was hurt. The Egyptians followed the chase, as malice is perverse and blind, and those whom God designeth to destruction take the ready course to bring it upon their own heads. For at this signal, again of Moses stretching forth his rod, the returning waters swallowed them all up in a moment. End of quote. John Owen declared, A greater instance, with respect unto the work of divine providence, of the power of faith on the one hand, and of unbelief with obdurate presumption on the other, there is not on record in the whole book of God. Here we have the end and issue of the long controversy that was between these two people, the Egyptians and the Israelites, a certain type and evidence of what will be the last end of the contest between the world and the church. Their long conflict shall end in the complete salvation of the one and the utter destruction of the other. End of quote. Though it was night, the divine pillar of cloud gave light unto Israel. Exodus 14.20 Dreadful indeed must have appeared those walls of water, 
for the sea would be raised unto a very great height on either side of them. It called for no ordinary faith to put themselves between such walls as were ready in their own nature to fall on them, unto their destruction any moment, abiding upright only under an invisible restraint. But they had the command of God for their want and the promise of God for their security, and these, when laid hold of, are sufficient to overcome all fears and dangers. That Moses himself, to guide and encourage them, and as the type of Christ, took the lead, is clear from Isaiah 63, 11 and 12. God led them by the right hand of Moses through the sea. Let us now briefly consider the remarkable incident related in our text from the sacramental viewpoint. In 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 and 2 we are told, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. From this scripture, we learn that Israel's passage through the Red Sea had the same signification that Christian baptism now has. The points of resemblance are many, and were developed at length by Manton, more so by Gauge, from whom we here give a digest. 1. The ministry of Moses was confirmed by this miracle, so that the Israelites were obliged to take him for their leader and lawgiver. So the miracles wrought by Christ assure us that he was sent by God as our lawgiver, which we must hear and obey. 2. Israel's experience is figuratively denominated a baptism because it signified the difference which God puts between his people and his enemies. The deliverance of Israel from the Egyptians was sealed by their passage through the Red Sea. Similarly, baptism is said to be an answering figure to the Ark of Noah, 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, as those in the Ark were exempted from the deluge. So, those in Christ are exempted from the deluge of wrath, which will yet overwhelm the world. 3. They were baptized in the cloud and in the sea, because by submitting to God's command, they gave up themselves to His direction. So in baptism, we dedicate ourselves unto Christ, avowing Him to be our Lord and Master. 4. The passing through the Red Sea and baptism had both the same outward sign, which is water. Matthew 3, verse 6. 5. They had like rites which were entering into the water and coming out of it, Acts 8, 38 and 39. 6. They had both the same ground, which was God's command and promise, Exodus 14, 13 and 16 and Matthew 28, 19, Mark 16, verse 16. 7. They were both for the same people, namely, the children of God, Matthew 28, 19. A. They were but once administered. Ephesians 4 verse 5. Let us now consider some of the practical lessons which this marvelous incident is designed to teach us.
First, the children of God are sometimes called on to face great trials. A red sea of difficulty and trouble confronts them. Let it be duly observed that it was not an enemy who put the sea there, but God himself. This tells us that the Red Sea represents some great and trying providence which the Lord places in the path of each newborn Christian. It is in order to try his faith and test the sincerity of his trust in God. Often this trial is encountered soon after conversion. Sometimes it arises from opposition of ungodly members of our own family, or you are engaged in some business, perhaps requiring you to work on the Sabbath day, in which you cannot now conscientiously continue. It means renouncing your means of livelihood, and you cannot see how it can be done and provide things honest in the sight of all men. As you emerge from the bondage of Egypt, you thought it would be easy to surrender everything to God. But now a red sea of testing is before you, and it appears unfordable. Second, the children of God are sometimes terrified by powerful enemies. The Egyptians who pursued Israel up to the Red Sea may be spiritualized to represent those sins of the Christians from which he expected to be completely delivered. For a little while after conversion, sin does not much trouble the newly regenerated saint. He is filled with joy and praise at the great things which the Lord has done for him. But it is not long before he discovers with the apostle, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Romans 7.23 Satan now pursues the young saint, and often it seems as though all the powers of hell were let loose against him. At such a time, our sins appear more formidable to us than before they were forgiven. In Egypt, our taskmasters only appeared with their whips, but now... They are mounted and in chariots. Ah, after conversion, sin looks far more frightful to the saint than ever it did before, and we feel the plague of our heart much more acutely. Third, the people of God are often troubled with faint hearts. When the children of Israel saw the Egyptians, they were sore afraid, and when they beheld the Red Sea, they murmured against their deliverer. A faint heart is the worst foe a Christian has here. When the anchor of faith is fixed deep in the rock, he need never fear the storm. But when the hand of faith is palsied, or the eye of faith be dim, it will go hard with us. When faith is dormant, the most insignificant stream will make us quiver and cry, I shall be drowned in the flood. But when faith is dominant, we fear not an ocean of difficulty or danger. The babe in Christ has but little faith, for he has but little experience. He has not yet proved God's promises and knows not his faithfulness. But as he grows in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, and becomes established in the faith, 
He will not despair before Red Seas and Egyptians, but meanwhile he often trembles and asks, How shall I ever find deliverance? Fourth, the people of God are here instructed how to act under great trials. The first word which the Israelites received in the hour of their great emergency was, Fear ye not, stand still. The second was, And see the salvation, deliverance of the Lord, which he will show to you today. The third was, Go forward. Exodus 14, verses 13 and 15. It is of first importance that we should diligently attend to the divine order of those three things. We are not equipped and ready to go forward until we have seen by faith the salvation of the Lord, and that cannot be properly seen until our fears be calmed and we stand still. Or, in other words, till we turn from all self-help and cease from all the feverish activities of the flesh. The continuous call of God to the Christian is, Go forward, persevering steadfastly along the path of duty, walking in that narrow way which the divine commands and precepts have laid down for us. No matter what obstacles may confront you, no matter what your circumstances may be, no matter what red sea of difficulty or danger be before you, go forward is God's authoritative word to you. Ah, but often that is far from being an easy thing to do. Quite true, dear friend. Yea, we will state it still more strongly. It is often impossible to mere nature. What then is to be done when the heart faints, when the soul is well nigh overwhelmed by the greatness of the difficulty or danger, standing right in your path? Two things. First, stand still. Your own efforts to better matters have brought no relief. Your own wisdom can devise no solutions. Very well then, stand still. Cease from all attempts at self-help. But, you answer, I have my responsibilities to discharge, my duties to perform. Quite true. But admittedly, you have now reached the place where a Red Sea is before you. You are dismayed and know not which way to turn. Here then is God's word to you in this dire emergency. Stand still. This means, get down on your knees and cry unto the Lord. Tell Him about all your trouble. Unburden yourself freely and fully unto Him. Spread your urgent need before Him. Probably you answer, I have done so, and thus far no way through my Red Sea has appeared before me. Then you are now ready for His next word. And see the salvation, deliverance of the Lord, which He will show you. And what does that mean? This, the exercise of faith in the living God, the trusting in Him to undertake for you, the confident expectation He will do so. Cry unto the Holy Spirit to work this faith in you. Remain on your knees until He has given you real assurance that your Father will show Himself strong on your behalf. Wait before Him till one of His promises is applied to your heart and power. Then you are ready to go forward. 
to resume your duties and discharge your responsibilities, to look for work, to go on with renewed strength. That Christian is only ready to go forward when faith has seen that which is invisible to sight and sense, namely, the salvation, deliverance of the Lord, before it is actually wrought for us. The way in which the Christian is required to walk as he journeys through this world on his way to heaven is the path of obedience to God's commands. Not but a spiritual faith inclines the heart to comply with God's demands and upon compliance to expect the mercy promised. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. Psalm 119, 166 This is the great business of faith as the Israelites were to obey God and to wait for His deliverance out of their imminent danger. Not but a God-given faith imparts courage to obey God in the most difficult crisis. If we be bidden to go into the Red Sea, we must not forbear, for none of God's commands are to be disputed, however contrary they be to flesh and blood. Faith teaches us to depend upon God in the greatest extremities. Faith receives the promise of God upon the condition or terms which he has specified. If Israel were to receive the salvation of the Lord, they must do what he bade. Faith and obedience can no more be separated than can light and heat in the sun. As Abraham, at the call of God, went out of Chaldea, not knowing whither he went, so Israel was required to go forward through the Red Sea, stretched before them. Probably it was not until their feet touched the brink that the waters divided. Nature might have gone over it, but faith passed safely through it. They feared they would be destroyed by Pharaoh's hosts, the very last thing that they would have looked to as a means of escape would be the sea. Yet in obedience to the divine command, the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Exodus 14, verse 22. Learn then, dear reader, we never lose by obeying God. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, Hebrews 11.29. True faith lifts a man above himself, puts into him a spirit which is more than human, and enables him to rise above the obstacles of reason and sense. Faith emboldened the hitherto trembling Israelites to venture through that strange chasm between the watery walls, as by dry land is added to magnify the divine providence in making a path in the ocean's bottom fit for women and children to tread upon, like a plain and beaten highway. By faith they passed through. They took not only a few steps, but continued to perseveringly march mile after mile and hour after hour. Hesitate not, my brethren, to venture upon anything which God calleth you unto, be assured that he will safely carry you through all difficulties and dangers. When the Egyptians, essaying to do, were drowned, 
The very means of Israel's deliverance was their destruction. See Second Corinthians 2 verse 16. It was a just retribution for the slaying of the male Hebrew children in the waters. Exodus 1.22 Fifth, the people of God may be assured of the divine providence. When Israel, by faith, obeyed the divine command to go forward, God wrought a miracle and delivered them from their dire situation. This is recorded for the encouragement of our hearts. It was God who had placed the Red Sea where it was, and it was God who opened the way for Israel through it. So, Christian reader, it is God and not the devil who has brought about the problem, the emergency, the danger which now confronts you. For of him are all things. Romans 11.36 As he has made your Red Sea, only he can cleave a way through it for you. Trust then in his unerring wisdom. Count upon his mighty power working on your behalf. Stand still and rest yourself upon God. View by faith, anticipatively, expectantly, his salvation or deliverance. Go forward in obedience to his commands, and he will show himself strong on your behalf. He never fails those who fully trust and unreservedly obey him. Chapter 21 The Faith of Israel Part 2 Hebrews 11 verse 30 In the preceding verse we had the faith of the believing remnant of Israel under the command and example of Moses. In our present text we have an exhibition and triumph of their faith under the leadership of Joshua. There we beheld what faith accomplished under their exodus from Egypt. Here we see what it achieved upon their entering the promised land. As the yoke of bondage was by faith broken asunder, so by the same faith the people of God were to obtain possession of Canaan. Thereby we are taught that the true life of the saint is, from the beginning to the end, one of faith. Without faith, no progress can be made, no victories be obtained, no fruit be brought forth unto God's glory. It is solemn to note that an interval of forty years' duration comes in between Hebrews 11:29 and 30. Those years were occupied in the wilderness. They were a judgment from God because of unbelief. Hebrews 3 Reader, how many years of your life record no actings of faith to the praise of divine grace? The remarkable incident referred to in our text is related at length in the sixth chapter of Joshua, which opens by telling us, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Verse 1. Israel had reached the borders of Canaan. They had safely crossed the Jordan, but could not enter the land because of Jericho, which was a powerful fortress barring their ingress. This was one of the cities which had affrighted the spies, causing them to say, 
The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. Deuteronomy 1.28 To their eyes, the cities appeared impregnable and far too secure for them to take. Jericho was a frontier town. It was the key city at the entrance to Canaan. Its capture was absolutely necessary before any progress could be made by Israel in their conquering and occupying of their promised inheritance. Failure to capture it would not only discourage the children of Israel, but would greatly strengthen the morale of the Canaanites. It was the enemy's leading stronghold, which doubtless they considered to be quite invulnerable. Yet it fell to a people who possessed no artillery, and without them fighting any battle. All they did in response to Jehovah's orders was to march by faith around the city once each day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day, when they gave a great shout and the walls fell down flat before them. Many important lessons are taught us therein, a few of which we will briefly mention before dwelling at greater length upon the outstanding one. First, God's ways are often entirely different from ours. Who ever heard of a powerful fortress being completely demolished in response to a company of people walking around it? Ah, God delights in staining the pride of man. The leader and lawgiver of Israel was preserved in an ark of bulrushes. The mighty giant of the Philistines was overcome by a sling and a stone. The prophet Elijah was sustained by a widow's handful of meal. The forerunner of Christ dwelt in the wilderness and fed upon locust and wild honey. The Savior himself was born in his stable and laid in a manger. His selected ambassadors were, for the most part, unlettered fishermen. Striking illustrations are these. The things which are highly esteemed among men are abomination in the sight of God. It is well for us to remember this. Second, God is independent of all natural means and superior to all the laws of nature. It is true that, as a general rule, God is pleased to bless the use of natural means, and that he frequently accomplishes his ends by the operations of those laws of nature which he has set in motion. But it is a great mistake to imagine that he is tied down either by the one or the other. What natural means were employed in Israel's crossing of the Jordan or their capturing of Jericho? What natural means were used in the preserving of Daniel in the lion's den or Jonah in the whale's belly? And what laws of nature were observed in connection with the birth of Isaac, the feeding of Elijah by the ravens, or the preserving whole the three Hebrews in Babylon's fiery furnace? Yes, God is superior to all means and laws. It is well for us to remember this too. Third, formidable difficulties and powerful oppositions are encountered in the warfare of faith. One will not follow the path of faith very far before he comes face to face with that which challenges 
all his courage, and defies all his natural resources and powers. Jordan rivers and Jericho fortresses still exist, but though the one may be unfordable and the other appear impregnable, yet they are the various trifles to the Almighty. The dimensions which they assume unto our vision is largely determined by the measure in which our hearts are engaged with the Omnipotent One. Those formidable difficulties and powerful obstacles are placed in our path by God for the purpose of testing us, for the training of faith, as opportunities to trust in and glorify the Lord. Fourth, Satan's strongholds cannot stand before a people who are obedient to and who rely fully upon the living God. This fact is surely written in large letters across Joshua 6. The Canaanites were completely under the dominion of the evil one, yet here we see one of their principal fortresses tumbling down like a frail booth when a powerful wind strikes it. To unbelief, these cities might appear walled up to heaven and seem impregnable, but faith laughs at such things, knowing that God has only to breathe upon them and they will collapse at once. Thus it was in the early days of Christianity when the imposing citadels of paganism crumbled away before the faithful ministry of the apostles. Thus it was at the time of the Great Reformation in the 16th century, when the kingdoms of the papacy were shaken to its very foundations by the courageous preaching of Luther and his contemporaries. Thus it was in many parts some fifty years ago, when the high places of heathendom fell down before the onslaughts of the missionaries. And why is it we are not witnessing the same gospel triumphs in our generation. Why is it that Romanism has now regained so much of its lost ground and is forging ahead in so many directions? Why is it that on the foreign field the forces of Satan are advancing instead of retreating? And why is it that in the so-called Christian lands a growing number of Jerichos defy the prayers and efforts of the saints. Is it because God's arm is now waxed short? Perish the thought. Is it because the scriptures are obsolete and unfitted to the needs of this twentieth century? Far, far from it. What then is the matter? This. There is a grieved spirit in our midst, and in consequence his power is withheld. The Holy Spirit of God has been quenched, for Thessalonians 5.19, and therefore the feverish and frenzied efforts of the present-day Christendom avail not. And why is the Spirit of God grieved? What is it that has quenched his power in our midst? This, we have departed from God's way. We have ignored His orders. We have substituted human devices. We have put our confidence in carnal weapons. Instead of encompassing the walls of Jericho after the divine order, 
we have resorted to worldly allurements, seeking to win over the Canaanites by fleshly attractions. My brethren, we cannot hope to have Israel's victories until we emulate Israel's example. We will never again witness a return to apostolic progress until we get back to apostolic methods. There can be no improvement until we truly recognize that it is not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4, verse 6 And the power of the Spirit will not be manifested in our midst until we once more enter the path of obedience, doing God's work in God's prescribed way, and confidently counting upon Him to honor and bless such efforts. Fifth, but the outstanding lesson to be learned from this incident is that which is stated in our text, where the fall of Jericho is attributed to the faith of the believing Israelites. Do we think enough of faith, chosen by divine omnipotent love, to be its channel? God alone doeth great marvels, but it is through the faith of his saints. All the victories of Israel were wrought by faith. Divine power and grace redeemed them on that memorable night. But it was faith of Moses which kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. It was God who divided the Red Sea, but in answer to the silent prayer of faith which ascended from the heart of his servant. All miracles of healing recorded in the Gospels were wrought by faith. Jesus prayed to the Father and then fed the multitude with five loaves and two fishes. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and then said, Ephrathah, be thou loosed. Jesus, by faith, thanked God that he heard him always and then uttered his mighty, Lazarus, come forth. And faith was wrought also in the recipient of divine favor. Thy faith hath healed thee. Be it unto thee as thou hast believed. Such were frequently Christ's words. The people who perished in the wilderness entered not into God's rest because of unbelief. And because of their unbelief, Jesus could not show many miracles in some places. Believe only, and thou shalt see the glory of God. Adolf Sapphire said, Israel's history is the history of God's omnipotent saving grace and of man's faith. From heaven, the sin's miracle. From earth, a sin's faith. From the election of Abraham to the birth of Moses, from the Passover and the Red Sea to the dividing of the River Jordan, all is miracle and all has to go through the faith of some chosen saint. Israel is before Jericho, a walled and fenced city. It is not by power and might, but by faith that they are to take it. Unquote. Let us consider the various aspects of faith which were manifested by the believing Israelites on this memorable occasion. One, the daring of their faith. When Israel crossed the Jordan, they, as it were, burned all their bridges and boats behind them. They were cut off from flight. They had no houses to which they could retire. 
and no fortress to which they could retreat. They were now in the enemy's territory, and victory or death were the only alternatives. To march peacefully and quietly around those walls of Jericho seemed a perilous undertaking. What was to hinder the Canaanites from shooting at or casting down rocks upon them? It was truly an adventure of faith, and it is venturesome faith which God delights to honor. Unbelief is hesitant and timorous, but bold faith is confident and courageous. Oh, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.